Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you. Thank you for joining us. We are in the book of Revelation, and we are in Revelation chapter 3. We are going to look today at the sixth of the seven churches that Jesus sends a letter to by the hands of John. And we're going to consider the church of Philadelphia today. So I'd like to start out by reading the letter that he dictated to John to this church in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we've looked at five of the churches so far. We've seen Jesus have particular words to each one, and we will review those again. Today, we want to consider the topic of this sixth church, the Church of Philadelphia. I would call this perhaps the alive church, the vibrant church, the faithful church. Philadelphia, the words mean brotherly love. Philadelphia was a small city of the kingdom of Lydia at, the t at earlier times. It was located about 40 miles southeast of Sardis, and it was located near this Mount Tmolus. It became wealthy and commercial through its location, through its vineyards and the wine production from those. Originally, it was a city of the kingdom of Lydia, and then it became under the Roman control later. It was named after a Pergamon king, Italus II Philadelphus. Notice the title that Jesus gives when he addresses this church. He says he is holy, the one who is holy, the one who is sacred, set apart, pure through and through. Holy, holy, holy is attributed to God, and he is God, God the Son, God come in the flesh, set apart, sacred and worthy of worship. He says he is the one who is true. 
meaning he is the one with no darkness in him whatsoever, no falsehood. Everything he says is true and right. His words and his evaluation of this church are true and trustworthy. He will not give flattery. He will not lie. He will not give falsehood. He's going to tell the truth. And that's important for this particular church to understand. He says also for this particular church that he is the one who holds, possesses the key of David. This was a special authority that was promised by God in the Old Testament to one person and him alone through the prophet Isaiah. I want to read that in Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, I want to read verses 20 through 25. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So who is this Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah? Well, let's consider this so that we understand that the prophetic word Isaiah is giving is speaking into the future for the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was a real man. We find information about him in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. He was an official under King Hezekiah, and this was during the days of Isaiah's writing. He was considered the master of the household. That was his title. He was over the household of King Hezekiah. So let's consider this. When you're reading Hebrew prophecy, a lot of times it has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, or what's called dualism, which means a person, a real person, may be named, and part of that prophecy may be literally applicable to them in that time. However, that name is also used, prophetically speaking, to point to the Messiah, and so that ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy comes later in the Messiah. Let me explain. You have this scene here in Isaiah 22, because Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, 
is a reference in this prophecy to the coming Messiah. The same thing is done in Zechariah. In chapter 3, Zechariah speaks of Joshua the high priest. In that day, there was a literal Joshua the high priest. But the word that's going forth is also speaking of Jesus the Messiah. Same thing in the book of Zechariah when he speaks of Zerubbabel building the temple. Zerubbabel did build the temple after the exile, but there's also a prophetic word that points to Jesus, the king priest that builds his temple later, and he is also known as Zerubbabel in that day. So it's pointing to Jesus the Messiah. There's another one also that I want to look up with you. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, it says this, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, Ezekiel lived and wrote long after David was dead. This is not speaking about the literal David. It is speaking about the coming Messiah who was a son of David. And that is verified to us in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3. And all through the book of Matthew, his gospel really hones in on the fact that Jesus is the son of David, the promised king that is rightfully heir to David's throne. So we see this applied in other ways. This Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, that Isaiah prophesies about is a name really attributing to the coming Messiah, Jesus, who now is addressing the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. And he says to them, I'm the one, I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied about that holds the key of David. And when I set before you something that's open, nobody's going to be able to shut it. And when I put before you something that's closed, nobody is going to be able to open it. That's what he's saying here. So Isaiah prophetically spoke here of the Messiah the son of David, and the master of the house of God. Just like Eliakim was the master of Hezekiah's household, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, is the master of his house. He's the only one with the rightful authority as a true son of David. And this authority is that he can open anything he wants, and nobody None, not even one, can close it. And he can close something he wants to close, and nobody, not even one, can open it. So in verse 8, he begins to speak directly to this church. And he says, I know your works. Notice this, they made straight A's on their report card. There was not one bad grade at all. In other words, contrast this with what he said to Sardis, a few verses earlier. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, he told Sardis, your works have not been found perfect before me. They're unsatisfactory. 
You've not fully executed your duties. You've not fully discharged what I've given you to do. But we come to the church at Philadelphia, and he says, I know your works. And then he has nothing bad to say about them. They were contrasted with those in Sardis, and they were found to be perfect before God. They were doing what they were supposed to do. They were faithfully serving him. So he tells them, he says, I, the one who holds the key of David, who can open and no one can shut, I set now before you an open door. That word is speaking of an open opportunity. It can be an actual door entryway, but it also speaks of an opportunity or an occasion. I'm setting before you an open opportunity that nobody can close. Nothing can close this. I'm setting before you a wide open door of opportunity. Then he says, it's because, and he begins to list their commendations. They have a little strength. In other words, this church is weary. This church is battle weary. This church has been through it. They're tired and they're sweaty, but they are still holding on and they are still moving forward with the Lord in spite of their weakness, in spite of their tiredness, in spite of their weariness. They continue to keep on keeping on. They continue to still hold on and move forward. He says, you have a little strength. You've kept my word. You have kept my logos, my word, the whole of it. You've not strayed from any part of it. This word for keep is the word, the Greek word tereo. And it means to guard from loss or injury, to keep an eye on, to maintain keep in one's custody or in one's care, to treasure it up, to attend to it carefully, to observe it practically and mark it attentively. In other words, you're serious about my word. You're serious about your life and doing my word. You're not just hearers of my word, but you are serious about being doers of my word. You're serious like the Bereans who studied to show themselves approved and they would judge what they heard by the word. They were serious about the word and they were going to let it have its priority. They were treasuring it. They were keeping it and they were living by it and obeying it. This is what he's saying. You've kept my word. And then he says the third thing. You have not denied my name, the name of Jesus. In the Hebrew understanding, the word name or Shem is speaking of the character, nature, and essence of someone. Who that person really is in their character. And he says this. He says, you absolutely positively have not renounced, disowned, rejected, or contradicted who I am, my very name. You've not contradicted it in your character, in your word, or in your deeds. That's why their deeds and their works have been found perfect before the Lord, so to speak, in contrast to the church at Sardis. Sardis. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the one who is holy and true. 
My evaluation is trustworthy and right. I know through and through the truth about your works. I know your heart. I know the sincerity of what you've done. And so he promises this church a very special promotion. Now I want you to understand this part of it, and I want to read this again to you. In verse 9, he says this, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, I want you to understand what Jesus is and is not saying here. He is not speaking of any idolatrous worship. He's not saying that these other people are going to come and worship at their feet as if they did these works, as if they are the ones that brought this to pass, and as if they are the ones worthy of worship. No, that's not what he's saying. The way you know that is because that that does not match with the whole of Scripture. All of Scripture teaches us, and Jesus teaches us, that He and He alone is worthy of worship. God the Father, God the Son. Later, we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we see this repeated. He alone is worthy of worship. We find the angels later telling John, do not worship me. You worship God and God alone. So that is not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying here is that people, these other people he's talking about, he calls them of the synagogue of Satan. He says they will come and recognize the work of God, the worthy one to be worshiped, and they will see it in these people. They will recognize it and they will have commendation for these. So Jesus is promising them here a special promotion and commendation, not idolatrous worship, but rather commendation that in his estimation, which is based upon his holiness and his truth, that they are worthy to be commended and that other people then will recognize the work of God and glorify God through them and their example. That's what he's saying. So then he gives them in verse 10 a very special promise that is only given to this one church. No one else gets this promise. He says this, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is talking about what we typically call the tribulation. And it's given to us, and we will observe what God has to say about it, when we look at Revelation chapter 6 through 19. That's where you will find more of the details. And then, of course, you know, you have to tie much of the rest of Scripture with that to understand the fullness of what's revealed to us in Revelation 6 through 19. But that is where we typically call it the tribulation period. There is a promise given to the Church of Philadelphia 
that they will specifically be kept from it. They will not have to suffer under that. They will be preserved. They will be kept from it because of their faithfulness and their perseverance. And that promise you won't find in the letters to the other churches. It's only to this church. He says in verse 11 that he is coming back quickly. That word is talking about it being without delay. In other words, there's not going to be any tardiness. We think of quickly like being in the very next moment or the very next day or the very next month or whatever. But it's talking about there being no delay. He's not going to be tardy when he comes. Now, we've heard all of our life, Jesus is coming. I want to tell you, do not discount that. That is true. It is true, and it's truer right now, today, in 2021, than it ever was before. But I want to read you in Second Peter, in Second Peter chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 10. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that in that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter is telling us here that in no way, shape, form, or fashion is Jesus slack concerning the promise of his coming. He is not late. He is not tardy. He is not delaying his coming. The only reason he has not yet come for his church is because more people are being saved. It is a testament to his long suffering that Jesus has not come yet. Oh yes, the world is worthy of God's righteous judgment. We see many, many injustices and corruptions all over the world today that are ripe for judgment. But the reason that God has not sent Jesus to get his bride yet is because, beloved friend, people are still getting saved. There will come a day when that window of opportunity and that 
season of grace, so to speak, for the salvation that we are experiencing now for people to be saved in the season of grace that we are in. There will come a day when that window is going to close and nobody's going to be able to open it at that point. Just like Peter said here, there came a day when Noah and his family were gathered into the ark. God closed the door and then the rains came and the earth was flooded and all the people drowned that were not in the ark. So it's going to come the same way it did in Noah's day. But what's happening now is God still has allowed that window to stay open a little bit longer because he wants everyone who will come to know him to come in. And so, beloved friend, in Jesus' name, I can do nothing else but implore you to be reconciled to God as his ambassador. I implore you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you do not know for certain that if you were to die tonight or this very day, or if Jesus were to come for his bride this very day, if you do not know for absolute positive certain that you will see him and you will go up to meet him, then I implore you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be reconciled to God. Ask him to forgive your sin. Confess your sin to him. Repent. Stop going the direction you've been going. Turn to him. Turn to him and let him make you brand new. Let him wash your sins away. Let him turn you into a brand new person in Jesus Christ. Forgive you. Justify you by faith and write your name in the Lamb's book of life. I, I just pray that you will do that because you may be that one that he's still waiting on. You may. We don't know. But Jesus is coming soon and without delay. He just loves the world so much that he wants and is calling everyone to come to repentance that will come in. So he is not late. He will come. He will come soon and suddenly and at exactly the right time. So he gives instructions in light of that to this vibrant living church. He tells them, hold fast. In other words, do not quit. Don't give up. Seize me. Hold on to me. Grasp and clasp me and don't let go. Continue to hold. When I think about this word for hold fast, it reminds me of maybe images from a movie or something like that where you might have seen where there might be a sailor or a pirate or whoever and the winds are very um, rough and tempestuous and there's this huge storm and all of this and this boat's there and you know they're they're having to cling to the mast of that ship they're standing there cleaving to the mast of that ship to make it through that's what it reminds me of is that kind of thing that no matter what the storms are that we would cleave to the mast of the ship of Jesus, that we will hold on and hold fast, knowing that he will bring us through, through the various storms. And he tells them, he says, hold fast, because I don't want you to lose your crown. 
so that no one takes your crown. In other words, I don't want you to lose it. I don't want you to forfeit your reward. This is pointing to and speaking of the Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ that will come in the future. And we will look at that in another place in Revelation. But I just want to point out to you, I do have a series on that, a series of multiple lessons where I've gone in depth into what is and what is not the Bema seat of Christ. And it is found in my series that's in the archives called Beaming at the Bema. And so I would encourage you to look that up if you need to understand that a little bit better. And then he gives the promise to the overcomer to this church. And he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in God's house. In other words, establish you and, and stabilize you. you. You'll be there. You'll be right there in my house, in my presence, close to me. And you won't be going in and out. And he says also there will be some form of special inscription of the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and Jesus, a new name that he will have. We will look at that when we come to Revelation chapter 19, because it is mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. And then he leaves the church with the call, of course, just like with all the others, for the open ear, those who will hear, those who will heed, those who will obey. So Philadelphia represents for us the faithful church, the persevering church, the church that is loving God and loving people, loving each other, the church that is living and vibrant and is truly alive. And he encourages them to hold fast. I want to close out by reading this final scripture to you. In Galatians chapter 6, I want to read verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, we don't grow weary. We keep on keeping on. We hold on. And when God gives us the open door, the opportunity, every opportunity we have, we do good. We do good for the glory of God, that he will be glorified. Just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when he said to them to let our works be known before men and be done in such a way that people will see the, see the works, the good works, and glorify our Father in heaven. To him be all the glory and all the praise. Don't give up. Keep pressing forward in whatever open door God sets before you. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes. In Jesus' name, God bless you today. Amen.